Welcome to Sighs and Whispers, an interview podcast series about cultural history. I'm Laura Claus Helms, a fashion and cultural historian. My guest this week is the fashion designer, actress, and model Adina Rone. We chatted over Zoom a few months ago, really covering every aspect of her life and work. Adina was born in Budapest during the war to a family of successful restaurateurs. Though this was recorded before the invasion of Ukraine, she speaks very openly about having to escape Hungary after the Soviets took over and how the Iron Curtain affected her family. In light of what is going on in the world today, I think that you will find this part of our conversation particularly illuminating. Listening back to it now, I know that I did. With her parents, she moved to London, where her father opened a restaurant and then founded what became a very successful and influential series of guidebooks, starting with Egon Rone's Guide to British Eateries in 1957. When I moved to London in 1991, these guides were still the gold standard for restaurant reviews in the UK. Egon Rone is widely considered one of the most important people in British food history, responsible for raising culinary standards across the nation. As a teen, Adina became an actress, appearing in a number of cult British films. She was a key member of the hip London scene and dated Michael Caine before she met her husband, Dutch film producer Dick Pollock. Together, they lived a hippie life in Morocco and Formentera until they returned to London, where she focused on modeling and acting and Dick on photography. In the early 1970s, Adina began selling vintage clothes from a shop on the King's Road that she shared with fellow model Lena Stengard. When Adina discovered a box of 30s and 40s vintage knitting patterns in 1978, a new business was born. Highly successful from the start, Adina and Lena sold their hand knits in stores all over the world. In the 1980s, Adina took over full control of the company and expanded it beyond knitwear. Throughout her career, she was at the center of swinging and creative London. We cover all of this and more, including her over 50-year marriage, motherhood, and spirituality. Dina continues to run her label from her home in London. Her 40s-inspired frocks and knits can be ordered through her website, www.adinarone.com. In December, I started a Substack newsletter, also called Sighs and Whispers, which covers many of the same themes as this podcast. You should definitely sign up. It's at laurakitty.substack.com. I send out one free newsletter a week and one paid. All financial support of the newsletter allows me the time to write the newsletter, make this podcast, and do my Instagram, so please do consider becoming a paid subscriber. I'm sure after listening to this conversation with Adina that you'll agree with me that she really needs to write a book about her very full and fascinating life. If you're interested in fashion, movies, the 1960s, I think you'll really love this conversation. Share it with your friends, subscribe, and please write a review so that more people can find their way to this podcast. On the website, I've put together a huge slideshow of photos, along with movie clips, so please go check it out while you listen. That's it, www.sizewhispers.com. Enjoy. Thank you so much for agreeing to meet with me today and talk. That's okay. I've known your work for a long time, and I also know about, you know, not just your fashion work, but your acting and modeling, and I thought that I'd love to talk with you, so thank you. Okay. Well, please go ahead and ask as many questions as you like. I usually love to start at the beginning. So I was born in Hungary. So I was born in Budapest and we came to this country, to England. We came out after the war in 19, just straight after the war, 1947. So I was born in the war in Budapest and my um, father was um, very wealthy and they had they had these big restaurants in Budapest very famous big one that's just now been turned into a five-star hotel on the Danube and then he had another couple and um, he was the only son and it was very famous very popular with 
you know, there was a cafe where everybody went and then there was a very good French restaurant. And it, it was very, it was it's nothing like it in England. It's or, or, or even in Paris. And then the, my grand, paternal grandmothers lived on this beautiful apartment, like a Parisian apartment. And then my mother came from um, a very sort of good upper-class Hungarian family. Then when, you know, first they had the Nazis in Hungary and then they had the, the Russians who basically won the war as far as anyone from that part of the world comes from. It wasn't, okay, it was American money perhaps that helped finance the Russians, but basically the Russians won the war as far as we're concerned. It wasn't really England and France and Germany. It was actually the Russians because it was the same thing that's happened in Napoleon. The moment they went entered into the freezing cold, no one really can survive that except these poor Russian soldiers. Anyway, then they arrived, and because there was a there was an actual war in Budapest called the Siege of Hungary, where in fact the in fact the Americans were then did bomb. Uh, Budapest against the Nazis, not the Hungarians, a bit. So it's, it's still quite war war torn in many parts because it's it's um, a lot of it is done up beautifully, but there's <laughs> quite the money to really do the whole thing up. Anyway, my father, who w- was came from a very wealthy family, he sort of had been to England anyway as a very young man because he'd ha- he he got a car when he was really young, which unheard of then. It was you know in the 30s even I think he had uh, or 40s um, no 30s and so he he knew England he had friends in England he also did um, he studied to be a lawyer although he joined the family business so he'd already done a small course in Cambridge and that sort of thing so when the Russians came no one quite realized what a nightmare it would be that uh, it would be this terrible iron curtain communist state and what an absolute terrible thing and Stalin was a nightmare as bad as Hitler in many ways but um, no one knew that at the time they just thought okay because in actual fact I have to find out the exact history because I'm actually going to write a book now about the whole thing but I know that my grandfather and father reopened the restaurant in 45 so there must have been a, a bit of a you know before obviously before the Iron Curtain came down but my father I think realized that the communists it wasn't going to be a good thing. No one, he didn't know either that there would be an actual iron curtain and it would be as bad as it was. So he, we basically, my sister and I, he came out with my mother. Six months later, we came out on the train in the boat with my maternal grandmother. And then, so I was about four and a half and I came out here and we lived, and because he had friends. So we, you know, it wasn't, we lived in a very nice house that a friend of ours, a friend of my father's lent us. Of course, it was it was difficult because they, they had so much money, they even had some money in England, but my grandfather withdrew it because he wanted his only son to come back to run the business in, in Budapest. But my father sort of then had to work quite hard, although, you know, it wasn't exactly like being a refugee because we, we were comfortable. But he did have to, and he, he eventually opened a restaurant in Knightsbridge in London next to Harrods because the food, the, you know, I just remember being, I thought, oh God, it's very grey and raining here because, you know, and I just remember Hungary was just more sort of joyful and fun. And 
I, the food was absolutely awful. <laughs> um, and it was in rationing. I mean, it's fair enough to say that there was a reason, but the English food was dire. And there was nowhere, I mean, so basically then my father did open this really good French restaurant next to Harrods and then slowly, surely he then started doing journalism and then he started doing like the Michelin Guide in England. It's the Egon Rene Guide and it became hugely popular. I mean, most people over the age of about 45 remember him as being a very big name like the Michelin Guide. So in a way, he, to be fair to him, he really did help change the face of food in Britain way back then. So I was sort of brought up with that kind of background. And then we moved to London and then we landed up in um, Oakwood Court in, a, in, in, a, um, a, in a, a flat there. Uh, and it was quite a, it was, you know, Holland Park, quite an upmarket area. Then I went to a convent in Notting Hill Gate till I was about 11, which I liked. And then I went to Putney High School, which I never liked. <laughs> And uh, although it's very good education. And then when I was, my father was very strict and you know, it was sort of quite high bourgeoisie Hungarian families. There was quite a lot of strictness, but I was amazed that he let me, I mean, I did get, you know, 10 GCSEs, but they were mainly, or O-levels they were called them, but they were mainly languages actually, because Hungarians speak languages very easily because no one can learn Hungarian. <laughs> and I was good at art. I was always good at art and I loved art and I was always loved clothes. You know, I used to get told off at school, put my cardigan on back to front or I dyed a coat in a navy blue that wasn't exactly the uniform navy blue. And so I had to go and see the headmistress. You know, it was always, or then put my satchel as a clutch bag after school. There was always something that wasn't correct. And then he let me go, which was amazing of him actually age 16 so after in England you do your O levels and then you do your A levels so before I did my A levels um, he let I got into St Martin's School of Art to do a foundation course which because I was too young then to do foundation or any kind of a degree course and then to me that was heaven because it was um, you know for boys and girls and you know sort of up, they're all artistic and arty and I, I was such a different thing from all this all girls boring school that I was, uh, I loved it there, but it was a foundation course. You did a bit of everything. And we had some amazing, long, long time ago, probably the beginning of the sixties. Um, we had people like Peter Blake who were teaching or Elizabeth Frink, the sculptress who was teaching sculpt because they weren't that famous then to make money. So I look back on those days and think, God, it was quite um, an amazing time. But then, because I, I used to model myself very much on Brigitte Bardot and so, you know, when I was an actress, I said, oh, it's a British Bardo. But anyway, I used to, so once someone discovered me in this, and said, oh, I want you to be in a movie. So I went home, I was only 17. I went to my father said, well, this is ridiculous. So he, blah, blah, blah. So he said, if you want to take this seriously, then um, he, we went and had supper with a, a one guy he knew in the film business, an old producer, but he was, you know, a, a, prob a good producer. He said, well, if, if you want to do this, then we have to get an agent. So he introduced me to a very good agent. And I didn't even know if I wanted to, it was just fun. I was 17. I didn't know what I wanted to do, except I think I wanted to be either a, an artist in, a, in an attic painting or do something with fashion. But you know, 17 in those days also is, is much younger than 17 now. You know, it's, you are, you, especially coming from a 
Central European bourgeois family. It's very green. So next thing I knew, I was with this agent and then I had a little part in a television thing. And the next thing I knew, literally it was like that. I got uh, a part in, you wouldn't know these being American, the St. Trinian's movies. I actually grew up in London, so I do know them. But yeah. Oh, you do. Oh, okay. Because it's so English. So <laughs> the original Saint, the original Saint Trinian. So I got the part of one of these glamorous six formers. But I was actually a six former. A lot of the other girls were quite old and older. I mean, not old. And I was quite wide-eyed. Was like, like, oh my god, they're stuffing things down their bras and doing false eyelashes. It was all. But anyway, it was really fun. Of course, I, I was very green, and there was one other girl who was very green with the six formers, and the others were, you know quite uh, sort of glammy and they, they used to they were making guns of navarone at shepherd's studios where we were making this film and they were all desperate that they'd be taken out by one of these famous actors like there was everyone from anthony quinn i think carrie anyway carrie grant used to give me and this other girlfriend a lift home every day in his chauffeur driven Rolls royce without ever laying a finger on us i mean i did hear that actually some people say he was gay, it doesn't really matter. He was terribly polite, terribly sweet. Whereas the other girls used to sit on the, um, on the steps of the trailer waiting to be um, maybe pulled by one of these famous actors and everything. <laughs> Thank you so much. So then it started that I, then I got a few little parts. And then in those days, you had to get an equity card in order to remain in, you know, to, to do acting. I don't, I don't quite understand how it happened that I got St. Trinian's without getting an extra card. Anyway, so in order to get an extra card, you had to do X amount of, I think X amount of days in something to do with theatre. So I, the agent got me a job as an assistant stage manager up in Coventry in Belgrade Theatre. And, you know, I really was very green. So I, I think about it, I think oh, it was rather incredible. So I was only 17 when I went up there and lived in a, had a little house in a, you know, had a little room in a house belonged to a family that my father took me up there and they were fine and then I had a bicycle and I rode into the theatre every day you know it was making tea and sweeping the stage and I always still wore high heels <laughs> throughout the whole experience and then you got little parts in you know I got a little part in the Christmas show and this and that and the other so I was there for about six months and it was a great experience because it was quite you know well, I mean, when I think of it now, actually, it was rather amazing to do when you were that young, coming from a family background, I did, because, you know, no, no parents around, no one to tell you what to do. And I think I really then loved it. So when I came back to London, I already got some parts in, I did things like The Avengers and The Saint and all these different television series at that point. That's, that was the main thing going on in England. And and then my father said, well, if you want to take this seriously, you're going to have to go to drama school. He was very sort of, you know, about education. So surprisingly, I got into RADA, Royal Academy of Dramatic Art. So I got, I got it after I'd been working already. And um, I, think I, I think I was now about almost 19, actually. Then they didn't really like, it was very much a theatre school in those days. And they didn't like the fact that I'd already done stuff you know, and, and television, because they were into theatre. And I had one particular uh, woman teacher who, she, she didn't like any of the pretty girls. So she kind of had it in for me. And um, she really had it, in, you know, it, she made my life quite miserable, made me stay down a year. 
And then halfway through that year, in the end, because I was still doing some work in the holidays, and in the end, he was called John Fernald. He said, I think you'll be better for the secondary arts. I said, what are they? He said, films and television. So I got, got into a huge argument, saying, how can you say there's films and secondary art? You know, this great... Anyway, he was, he, was, he was right. I mean, I did do theatre after that a bit. I did, I must have done about six different plays in different repertory theatres. And some of them in, I did my first thing when I left, I did a play in Bromley Theatre with, um, what's he called, David Hemmings? You know, David Hemmings? And the, the daughter of Winston Churchill, Sarah Churchill, was an actor, she was in it. And so Winston Churchill came on the last day in a wheelchair with his wife. And the, up on the stage, they wheeled him up, you know, so I thought that, that was quite amazing to meet Winston Churchill. And then I did a few, I did The Servant at Guildford and The French Mistress Canterbury. I did a, a few bits and pieces of theatre, but I never felt happy doing it. I much preferred the camera. I much preferred working in films and television anyway. So I went on working, I did quite a few movies. I mean, you know, it was, I had quite a nice career actually, and it was going, quite well and you weren't in those days the competition wasn't huge like it is now and most of your competitors were actresses it wasn't really like now with a lot of models and you know not even necessarily trained actresses so I really loved those days and I loved going to studios and sitting in these big places with all the lights and you know I just rather loved the whole thing and then I did some you know I did a couple of carry-on movies and then I did one ridiculous movie which is still to this day it's either the worst film ever made or a cult movie like uh, called um it was either called slave girls or what was the other word for it? Uh, is it which one prehistoric women okay. prehistoric women you know but, it, but to, to this day the, the other the main i was the head of the slave girls and the head of the nasty girls she's still a great friend of mine and i went up and i did some good for you know i did i was just a tiny part in the collector with william wyler and then I did go up and see, you know, because they were, I went up for parts that Julie Christie went up for. So it was quite a, it was, it was, it was an interesting time. I didn't just, just do peculiar movies, but those are the ones that were always commercial. The other ones were, you know, probably not as commercial really that I did. Did you enjoy the actual acting? Yes, I loved the whole thing, everything. Yeah, I loved the whole process. Yeah, there was another, there was another one about Sherlock, it was the Sherlock Holmes thing about Jack the Ripper called A Study in Terror. Actually, that was a good movie. It was a really good, really good cast. Yeah, and I did a tiny scene with Dirk Bogard in something, you know, so I, it, it, but I, no, I loved it acting, but I, I kind of liked the whole thing of doing that Stanislavski method where you really, you know, some of these parts were stupid parts too, but you still had to get behind them and you do a whole character that you made up yourself. You know, I was either a spy or a prostitute or, you know, whatever, but you still had to be the character. So, and I, will, I always enjoyed that. And I loved the whole costumes, obviously, the whole dressing up. In 65, I went up for a movie, because most of these people I worked with were older and the film director were older. I went up for a film that is how I met my husband. He was, they were from Amsterdam. They were all very young and very groovy and hip. I thought they were all, no one was groovy and hip in the film industry in England at that point. And I was going out at that point with an older actor. Um, actually, I had two boyfriends that were older actors and they were all much older than me. So suddenly you're in a 
room full of these really hip, cool guys. And one of them, uh, Dick, who's my husband of Syl from this day, was sitting with his feet on the desk and had blue shades on. And then the actual main producer with the money had a blonde drape around his neck. And I just sat down and burst out laughing because I thought this was so funny. And my husband Dick said, oh, she's the one we should have because at least she's got a sense of humor because all the other serious actresses from serious actresses, she'd sit there and the, there was a chair in the middle of all this lot and they were asking questions. So then they asked me to do a film test in Amsterdam. And I said to my agent, you're coming with me. This lot are very, very, you know, I'm not going on my own there. Anyway, um, so I got the film and then basically I've still been with my husband since that time. <laughs> so then when I met him, and it was now, we're now talking 65, 66, and the whole thing in London was, thing in Amsterdam started way before London, actually, that very hip, cool, you know, taking acid, psychedelic thing that was already there, it wasn't even before here. So then, because he was much hipper and cooler, we lined up going to live in Formentera. Do you know what I mean by Formentera? For three months, when way back in 65, 66, when there was no one there. And that was wonderful, because it was like three months of um, a little farmhouse, no electricity, water in the well, and, you know, bicycles down to the beach, and not a soul on those beaches that are now full of those grand yachts. And um, it was a really fabulous time. It was very much 60s, if you know what I mean, of, of that time. And then we also went to Morocco. But the point is, at this point, after I, there was, <laughs> he, he was in the film business in Amsterdam. And um, because I was, I hadn't done any work for three months while we were living in Formentera, but he took lots of pictures of me because he was a great photographer but not a professional photographer. Well, he'd done a bit of photography. He was mainly a, 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 in, into movies, producing or helping direct or whatever. When we came back to London, I, we didn't have any money. And the Americans had just pulled out a lot of finances for, English, in, uh, for movies being made here. So suddenly the movie industry was very, you know, sparse. So in order to make money, I then started modeling and Dick had um, people, oh my God, those photographs are great that you took of me. And he then suddenly got thrown into being a photographer and he just went along with it. Um, I actually borrowed my, um, my mother's husband, what do you call it? I suppose it's my stepfather, it's a camera at Leica. <laughs> and went off and suddenly was offered all these incredible jobs doing all these very famous movie stars. And a lot of those, weirdly enough, so he's got amazing pictures of Visconti and Charlotte Rampling and all amazing. And, and then, then he started doing rock and roll pictures like all the great ones, Eric Clapton and Mick Jagger. And he just had an exhibition three years ago of them. And then COVID came and actually he's doing another one in two weeks here in London. Shame you're not here because they, they, they are very good. So then I continued doing modeling to earn money, which was never my favorite thing, but it, it was very nice money. And I still did a bit of acting. Then I had, you know, we had our first daughter in 71, our first child. And at the same time, you know, I was still, we were always buying vintage clothes in those days, us girls. And I used to, you know, make them smaller or change them around a bit. And then a lot of my friends said, oh, I'd like to have, can I, can I, can you make me one or do, can I? so I started very, you know, at home selling a few bits and pieces. And then my agent, my model agent said, oh, there's another model 
Swedish model. She's got vintage clothes. Why don't you get together with her? She's always putting people together. And it turned out her husband owned Antiquarius mm. and that was full of stalls. And so she said, oh, you know, she, she was very good at hustling and selling. This was my partner. And also, but I was never good at particularly great at all that. But she said, oh, let's have a stall. And I said, I don't want a stall. I don't want to, you know. Anyway, she was very, she was very clever, very persuasive. So she persuaded me to have a stall selling the vintage clothes in Antiquarius. And the husband, who was a bit, bit of a bully, said, I want you to go into the shop now. And he put us into the shop in the corner of King's Road. And I said, well, I don't want to, you know. But anyway, he was quite a bully, actually. And also, he didn't let us have any favours. He wanted the money straight away. And we had a wonderful opening um, with all the vintage clothes and um, all up. I mean, it was incredible, actually. We went terribly well. But then I spent, you know, everything I've done, I've always put my heart and soul into it. So when I was acting, I really did that and went to Rod. And then when I did the video, I was up at five in the morning, going off to all the markets and auctions and everything. Then I found a trunk full of old 30s and 40s knitting patterns. And I was... I mean, I always loved 40s, always been my favourite area. So she, the partner, was actually living in some big grand place down in Devon. And she actually found knitters to copy the patterns. And then I changed them because obviously they're all up here and tiny and tight. And so I then started somehow or other changing them. And I don't know how on earth I even found the hand knit yarn because no one was doing hand knits. And I go to Portobello Road and find little vintage buttons. And then we started doing... And they were lovely in, in, in the late 60s, early 70s. No, so no, by now we were early 70s, actually, because my daughter was probably only about one and a half, two at this point. And so we used to put the vintage-looking 40s hand knits with little lace Victorian collars that, you know, would also find them. And it sort of was, you know, really popular. And then so I said, oh, you should go and take these knitwear to London Fashion Week. It just started the London Fashion Week thing. What's London Fashion Week? Anyway, went and took all these fair hours and little sweaters and just had a W.H. Smith book. You know, there's nothing. It was very unprofessional. And my partner was always a bit of a nightmare because she'd go off and say, oh, well, I'll be because I'm, I was the hard worker and I was running it all. But she did get the production, to be fair to her. Of, of the knitters but then she oh well, I'm going off now I'm going off here or going she's going off skiing fine so first I was there on my own L luckily she joined me and suddenly there was people queuing like Bergdorf's and Bendel's and and um saying oh, I would like to wear I said well I can't tell you when you'll get them because it takes at least four weeks to knit one and um you're going to have to pay up front because we can't that's fine so they're not only paid up front but they didn't mind it was four, five, six weeks and little boxes arriving to US because I can see now they were so unusual and so different and so special that I can understand now having run shops that fine, I'll wait because never, they would hardly ever the same anyway, you know, because they'd all be, they will be behind knitted. So that suddenly really took off. What was the price point? Were they quite expensive? Well, they, they were, they were fairly expensive. I mean, I know, I now have people, so many people to this day say, oh my God, I loved your knit, I love that shop. And either they had quite a few or say, oh, but I could never afford them if they were very young. 
So I don't think they were super, super expensive, but they weren't cheap, cheap, cheap. So I think the press point, obviously the price is irrelevant because it would have not make any sense. But I mean, there were a lot of celebrities who had them, obviously. But then the people who said I could never afford them, they were very young at the time, mm-hmm. if you know what I mean. Before we knew it, we were showing in Paris and Milan and New York, selling this knitwear and taking orders, even though I'm saying, I don't think we can fill all those orders. She was very ambitious and pushy, the partner. Anyway, we, we, we did. I mean, um, the great thing was that you couldn't hold us to time because we couldn't say a time. And my partner and I, you know, we really fell out big time. She really, she went off once for three months and or two months or whatever, you know, it, it was... It was fine, but it wasn't fine because we were partners. And then, oh, that's right. Her husband moved to L.A., was desperate that the wife would join him there. Or we said, I found you a shop. You're going to get a shop in L.A. I said, well, I don't want a shop in L.A. But it, it's funny. In those days, things weren't planned. You didn't have strategy. You just sort of went along with whatever. You went along with the flow. Well, OK, let's see. So anyway, there was. he found us this huge space in uh, Little Santa Monica near Hunter's bookshop. But it was so huge that we literally had to buy a sofa and, because, you know, we had these little hand knits and, and palm trees in there to take up the space. It was mad. So we had this shop. And then in those days, it was just, um, you know, fax machines. There were no I. So the girl who ran it used to have to send us. I mean, it was all so archaic, the whole thing. But it, it was it, it sort of went okay because obviously in LA it's, oh my god these little British hand knits how incredible you know but then I fell out with her big time so we she she sold her share to me kind of thing and my husband then came to run it because at that point he was also running a sound recording studio and um, he left to run it because it was it was now quite getting quite big and then. At that point, I started also, that's right, we did used to buy in some clothes to go with the knitwear, uh, like suede skirts from Maxfield Parish, or I bought, I mean, Jasper Conran always says, you were the first person to buy my clothes to put in the shop, right? And then I didn't really, it didn't really, really go with the knitwear. And I wanted something, you know, like a sort of funkied up tweed look. So I wanted that whole British look, but made it slightly sexier. So I started doing that. And then before we knew it, before I, but now I split up with a partner. So then the clothes were, became, you know, quite a big thing, although people only knew us for the knitwear, but the clothes were also taking a lot of time. And then we sold all over the world. I mean, we sold every country you, you can think of in Europe and Australia and Hong Kong and Japan and America. And it really was quite a big business. It sort of grew without any plan, without any, you know, and sometimes as it grew, to be honest, when it really got quite big, it was almost too much. I mean, although we had staff then, we had then we had a shop in Harvey Nichols and the shop in Kings Road. Then we had, um, we got rid of the shop in LA eventually because it was crazy dealing with something so far. And then we had, um, oh, we had a little shop in Burlington Arcade. Then we had a shop within a shop in Selfridges and Paris in 30 staff. And then we're doing fashion shows. And it was such hard work. When I look back, I think, I don't know how I did that. Because then by that time, I'd had my son as well. So I actually had my son as we were really getting into America with the hand knits. And I, I, when we moved into this house where I'm still now, he, he had just been born and I was packing boxes with the au pair thinking, 
I, I just don't know how I did it actually. You know, it, it was very, when I think back, it was, it was very stressful actually doing those, not only the fashion shows, but you also had to start a new collection. You, you finished one, started a new one, and then you were showing last one at the shows and selling it. And it was a treadmill. You could never ever come off. And the times, that was it. You had to show in that time of fashion week or the fashion show had to be at 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning at, you know, it was, uh, but you sort of got into the groove and did it, but actually it became, you know, and, and all that staff and the staff problems, I wasn't interested in actually, but after all, it was your company. So you couldn't, and then, you know, we did do some licensing in Japan. We did a licensing deal and it got really huge. At one point we had, you know, we did get into some financial difficulties because you had to borrow money because of the way you run your business, because you sold something and they didn't pay you for 60 days. So it was always a cash flow thing. And that's how everyone run their business in those days. Well, you still, still the fashion business, you still have to do that. But normally you have people now, you have all financial backing or people helping. In those days, none of our, none of us designers had all any of that. And at one point, you know, and, and by now we were, it was, you know, we were very successful. We were always in all the magazines. We were in all those big magazines with all the shows in. One show, we, we got Rolls Royce to back and I had um, Naomi Campbell and, you know, and Jerry Hall did one for me. And we were sometimes on the front of the front of one show I did with Jerry Hall because she hadn't done a show for quite a while. She was on the front of the Times and the Telegraph, but I'm talking about three quarters of the paper of it, you know. So it was it was quite of exciting in one way because you were so, you know, your moment of stardom happened quite a lot because of those shows. But I looking back, I didn't enjoy that whole process of being at the same time you're a designer, but you also have to be a boss, which was never my idea of anything I ever wanted to do. Anyway, so then because we had some financial, we had some backers, we had two different backers and that was worse horrible because they had no idea how to run a small famous design business because we weren't chanel or armani you know and then in, in the end we shrunk the whole thing that right down but then i so i still i still sold to some shops and then i then i got a we were doing i was a designer at debenhams you know they have these design stuff so i did one i did that as well which was a real eye opener onto what the high street fashion, I mean, I was shocked how they used to buy me things and say, oh, I bought you this because we'll take with your, you know, so that we'll take that to China and then we'll copy it with your handwriting on it. I thought, my God, that's not at all the process that I do. I sit down and draw it all and think even have inspiration. And of course, it was very lucrative. We made lots of money that way. So then we did that and then I oh then I did then I did a thing with TK Maxx that was very lucrative in the last quite a few years now I've really shrunk it right right down my business and I actually have also quite a lot of I sell to a couple of shops that I love one of them is the cross I don't know if you know it in Holland Park so she's my favorite so I'll, I'm happy to do that and one other shop that sells you know to sort of special occasionally things that the area I've sold for quite a while, so I still have a clientele there. And then I do some private clients, but also now I'm doing a bit more online because of COVID, because the private clients, and you know, I, I couldn't see private clients during COVID. 
because I, I did a lot of made to measure, but not a lot. I mean, it, it, it's quite nice because I've made it small enough that I can also do other things with my life, not just, I've cut it right down to just one assistant or sometimes not even. And during COVID, I was on my own doing it, wrapping boxes, which I hadn't ever done. Take, you know, got the cleaner to take in the post office, but I've now got it down to something. I, I tried to give it up for three months and I actually found I really like looking at new fabrics and colors and, you know, looking at yarn. I, mean, I really, I, I, I felt quite miserable not doing that. So it's very small. It's not, you know, I don't really want it to be bigger because I can do other things. And I want, I, I, so many people ask me to do a book, which I would like to do, especially focusing on the early, you know, what happened in Budapest before the war and after the war and with my parents. So I'm happy still doing it as I'm doing it because I've still got my finger in, you know, it's still quite exciting or launching a little new collection online, but it's all very small. As long as it's making a bit of money, it's fine, but it's, it, it, it's nothing of nothing compared to what it was huge with, you know, serious money that one, I never de dealt with that. My husband dealt with that. So in a way, you know, my husband's having an exhibition in two weeks and he's 81 years old. So things don't really, you know, it's funny, things have changed, but it's, I guess for me to give it up, I, you know, and have more time to do other things, which would be nice. Cause it's quite time consuming when there's only, we, you know, used to have, leave everything to assistants and things. And we do, I don't do that anymore. I mean, I still got a girl running the web pages, obviously, that I work with. And I, I've actually, I think I, I will get a PA now just once a week or something, because it is a bit much. But I do still love, I love colour and fabrics and knitting. And, and I still get a buzz out of, oh, a new, let's do something new and I suppose I won't, I won't give it up at the moment, but let's see, let's see. Where do you get your inspiration from? Well, when I used to do the fashion shows, I used to have a, like a theme say that, uh, not all the time, so, but I mean, one was a fifties, which is fifties, but it was a kind of a loose, you know, there were a lot of suits and, you know, I had Stephen Jones do little hats that were fifties hats. To be to be honest, most of the because I love the forties and I love most of my dresses are very forties inspired, and then the knitwear. I suppose I still like this one. I still do Fair Isle because I love it and it's still you know. But I mean now we do them on little hand frame machines. I mean they're still handmade because there's one lady doing it, having to do the whole thing. But the actual knitting needle thing, honestly, I've only got two knitters left. <laughs> You know, it's it's a dying craft. I've got one feral knitter left because this feral hand knits are just beautiful. But now I can still do these. It's still handmade in so much as it's with a little home machine and you have to put it all on by hand. The inspiration, I mean, to be honest, anything. I mean, I might just see, I mean, I'm just looking at that embroidered cushion that, in fact, <laughs> I, just, I, I had some embroidered cushions made at one point for our shop. I'm looking... You know, it might be a flower from that. And you think, oh, okay. Because the prints as well, that, um, so I designed the prints and my son who lives in Taiwan, he'll help me do them so that it did, they can be digitally sent to the digital company because I don't know nothing about the digital world. So the prints as well, I might just come across, oh, say a vintage dress 
and then take that vintage print and then change it to, oh, he's been very helpful in that, make it bigger flowers, change the colors to the, that sort of thing. But the inspiration, I mean, it's funny, you just pick it up. Like if you go to an exhibition, you might see a Matisse fabric in the background and suddenly go, oh God, yeah, do you know what? I, I really like that burnt orange off. So let me put, but it's very difficult to say, I think all day long you get inspired by something or other, might be a color that, ah, yes. Yeah, or even, even as simple as when I haven't got much time, if I, I mean, you sort of go with the flow like right now, I like bright colors and I noticed that so does everybody else. So as a designer, it's very strange when you think, okay, I think everyone's so fed up with the somber mood of COVID that the bright colors in my knitwear now, I've done some pretty bright colors. Whereas say three years ago, everyone was happy more with navy or bottle green or, but that, that's a curious thing that I don't really follow fashion now, of course, but because I do my own thing. But whenever, like now I'm doing the brighter colours, I know, oh, everyone's doing brighter colours. So I'm not doing it because everyone's doing it. I'm just doing it. And then, oh, how weird. Everyone else is as well. So I think it's just a generic thing as a designer that you pick up on by osmosis, whatever's happening. Or maybe if there's a film, I've noticed, say, if there's a film that's fabulous and very visual that you see quite a few designers picking stuff out from it. How, you know, because you've obviously been married for, what, 50? Over 50 years. Yeah, um, way, way over. <laughs> how do you, how have you maintained such a long marriage? Because I don't think, you know, I don't think of many people who got married, especially at that time in the 60s in that sort of world, you know, those relationships haven't lasted generally. Well, I mean, I think, A, obviously we have a lot in common anyway, because we come from that world of, you know, the film world together. And weird enough, we've, we've always worked together. I mean, right now he's working on his, putting the photographs together and he's doing that with our son as well, actually, in Taiwan. <laughs> oh, it's crazy what you can do now. But we always worked together, well, always worked together on that film. And then he used to take photographs of me that for my work. And then he ran the business with me. But, you know, I think it's a question of, A, we have that in common. And I think we're, you know, we're good friends, which is another thing. And we know so many things that we've done together. And I think one of the other things are weird enough, being brought up in England since I was four and educated and everything, but I never feel English, which is odd. I just still always feel Hungarian, even though I spent all my life here and been educated here, run business here. And my husband's Dutch. And the fact that it's quite a different I mean, I, I do remember a lot of Budapest and I was born in the war, but he was actually, he, because he was born in 1940, he remembers the war in Amsterdam. He remembers the Nazis coming in uniform to his door because they were in the underground movement, his parents, and from hiding from one house to the other. And I think that also is something that, I, I said that the other day, I think that's another thing that makes us closer and you know we both I mean we speak a bit, a bit of German and French and stuff and so every now and then we'll say words in those languages so in many ways I think that's another thing that has drawn us together in many ways and um, the fact that we can still do that together whereas if I'd married a, just a very very English man 
I wouldn't have any of that understanding, a mutual understanding of what happened in the war in Europe and this language that, you know, you go in and out of languages. So I think, you know, we're both very strong-willed people. So obviously, but, you know, we have long conversations when we about stuff as well. We don't just sit there in silence. So we're both, I suppose, quite impassioned people about things. Amazing. What was the movie that you met on? So that was a film, it was it was um, a Dutch movie called To Grab the Ring. And it was about this guy who was an actor called Benny Carruthers, who actually was a rather wonderful actor. He, he did a film called Shadows with John Cassavetes ages ago. And he, was in, and he he had the girlfriend in Amsterdam, the girlfriend in England, who was me, and the girlfriend in France or Berlin. I don't sort of, do you know what? I never took off. <laughs> Not really. But brought you two together, so that's all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we did do another mad, mad, typical 60s film in Morocco, which was um, a friend of his, and it was in the 60s. I mean, you know, the the, the local, um, from Amsterdam, the local guy he sold dope came along with us. (laughs) So it was Michael J. Pollard, myself, this mad director who was from Amsterdam. Uh, Michael Cooper was a very 60s photographer at that time of The Stones. And then Traffic, the band Traffic, they all, for some they were going to write the music, but they all also came, which was, you know, it was just like a typical 60s thing. We did it in Wazizat, which is way down south. And now a lot of films have been made, but at that point, no one, you know, this was in 67 or something. And, you know, the, 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 all the props were flown to the Canary Island instead of to Morocco. It was a completely 60s, it was about a, there was a Volkswagen bus that someone had made a silver guitar around it. And the film was the silver guitar with the, doing ribbons around the world. It was completely so 60s. But the problem was the director went a bit off his rocker and the film, we all we were all there, but the film, you know, then the cat, the light equipment also got sent to the wrong place. And my husband drove this silver guitar down all the way from Amsterdam over the Atlas Mountains with some other people. And it was such a sick, if only someone had done a film of that film. But sadly, that whole film also, there was like five minutes in the can in the end. But, you know, those experiences were pretty amazing too. And then, you know, we've, we've done some great trips together. Like, obviously, we've, we've traveled a lot of places to India and Asia. But the main main ones were to Tibet and Ladakh that were really amazing, quite hard trips actually, to be fair. So there's all that as well as another dimension to our relationship. You said that it was, you mentioned that it was quite hard with having the small children and running the business. How did you balance them? Well, first of all, we we got an office that was around the corner to the house, which was a huge big, when I look at it, I think, my God, we really, we it was a four-story building that was used, you know, the pattern cutting room and the machinist and downstairs was the whole knitwear thing with all these balls of yarn. So that was round the corner for a start. I didn't, have, I didn't have a nanny for the first six years of my life with my daughter, but then when my son came along, I always had an au pair and then a nanny at home. So that obviously was necessary. I don't really know how we did it. I sometimes say to you, how did we do that? But, you know, because we were still you know, we still had a lot of friends. He said, well, we weren't so, so, I think we're much more social now than we were then. But also you, you, the social thing was also 
part of your work anyway. I mean, there were so many people you met through your work. I, I, don't, I'm, I don't know how I managed. I really don't know how I managed it, actually. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. It was hard. I mean, enjoyable, too, of course. But it was, it was tough. But also, I was a lot younger. I mean, the energy level's different. When you started making the sweaters, the knitwear, did you stop selling the vintage at the store? Well, no. In the beginning, which you still sold a bit of vintage and then put the lace collars over the fair arms, which Ralph Lauren then actually copied from us. He copied a few things from us, actually. And once he said to me, they say I copy you. <laughs> But then slowly, I think when I started making my own clothes to go with the things, to go with the knitwear, um, obviously then it just became, initially probably I sold the Victorian, it was a lot of Victorian petticoats in those days and camisoles and those and the, the fairars went very well with them. But then I think later on, we, we just eventually, it literally was our clothes and our knitwear with no vintage, or maybe there was occasionally a vintage lace bits going on, yeah. And then we bought actually, the, yes, because before I started designing, because we actually, not only I bought some English designers, but then we bought some nice things. Uh, if when we were in New York showing, there might have been some Navajo bits. You know, it was quite fun buying for the shop actually, <laughs> as well. Yeah, I saw some pictures of you with like Ozzy and all of those people. It seems like you were part of London nightlife for a long, or like London social life for a long time. Yeah. Also, I think dated. Michael Caine earlier in the 60s, right? So mm. what was that all like? So Ozzy and all that was much later because that was much more the hipper, cool thing. And, you know, but very early on, yes, when I was an actress, yes, I, I did go up with Michael Caine. And then he, um, you know, a lot of our, it, it was very exciting time because actually when I started to go out with him, he was basically pretty much an out-of-work actor. <laughs> Uh, living with Terence Stamp, who was also become a really close friend of mine. I absolutely loved him. But, you know, would go out and then slowly he started making. It was quite exciting in those days because then we, you know, we were friendly with... Well, actually, I was friendly with quite a few... In those days, a long time ago, there's people like Joan Collins and Leslie and Evie Brickus, who sadly he's just died recently. And it was quite exciting to, to, to be in that um, with all those actors and people who are well-known. But then... You were part of that film scene then. And it was quite sort of interesting to see his career then blossom while I was still with him and go to some of those premieres and all that. But then I thought it was far more, in, in many ways, it's more me and more meaningful than to have been with more younger people of my age later on, like Ozzy Clark and the, all that London scene, Manolo. And they were all friends. And it was really good because you just hang out with it. It wasn't like now you you sort of almost make a date to go somewhere or those days everyone sort of hang out and go to the same places. So you just meet them and you didn't necessarily make it. I mean, occasionally you said, oh, come to dinner, but it was very much a group that would all go to the same parties and be in the same place at the same time. And now, yeah, I found those great and everyone was beautifully dressed. I mean, not what I think beautifully dressed, but all this vintage. And then just sort of granny takes a trip with a velvet flare trout and then, Everyone was wearing vintage. I mean, I, I just thought those days were were great and also quite a far cry from that early days when I was with much older people who were very focused on the film business. And then in the 60s, that whole thing 
you know, there was more of a spiritual take on things and astrology and, and all of that. I found far more fun and more my age, actually. <laughs> you know, so, yeah, I, I, it was it was great because I, I was very much part of that whole 60s movement in the King's Road and they were all my friends. So and we had this this little flat then in um, Redcliffe Square. Mm-hmm which was five stories up and was really cute on two little floors with the round windows. It was just lovely. A lot of people came up there, you know, Ozzy and, you know, Patty and George Harrison at that point. You know, loads and loads of people would always, um, if someone rang the bell, it was much, so we kind of looked down month and would only throw them the key if we wanted them to come up. Or they have to, there was a phone box opposite that had to phone us and say, well, here, can you throw the key down? <laughs> it was quite, it was, actually, those days were great because it really was a um, very, very different feeling from now. Everyone was so free and money wasn't an issue. Money was never an issue. Now it's all about money. In those days, you know, rich mixed with poor, aristocrats mixed with thieves. You know, it was, it was, um, it, it, I can understand why a lot of people now hanker after that era and think it's such an incredible era because, I'm very lucky to have been young and part of that. You know, some friend of mine keeps pointing out, yeah, but you were lucky, but there was some, some of us were working very, very hard in very boring things. So I do consider myself lucky to have been part of that with all these artistic people. And then Dick had a lot of amazing hip, cool friends from Amsterdam. There was one, The Fool. Do you remember The Fool? They, yeah, so they were really good friends of Dick. So we used to hang out with them. And for me, they were like, magic people with looking magic with all these beautiful clothes and they painted the apple shop and then they sold them the clothes and be just being part of this very arty scene at that point in time I think was a very lucky thing to have been part of actually you're very fortunate. At this point I've been a huge sort of I guess fan of that that time and those designers for 20 years I've been collecting this yeah, yeah. and researching it. So what you've said just reinforced everything I sort of thought about it. But... Yeah, well, it was, you know, I understand, I understand the, the hankering after that total, let's see if this exhibition, I'm not quite sure what he's going to put in it in two weeks, but yeah, I think he wants to do quite a few of the, the last exhibition very much rock and roll, but this one I think is going to put some of the 70s vibe in there because, yeah, I think that, I think the world's become a very difficult place to live in right now. And especially if you're young, very difficult, I think. And for us, it was, well, I mean, who, who knows? Obviously, if you're young, you probably have a different view on everything that's going on right now. And, you, and youth is youth, so a lot of it won't change, interactions and relationships and something. But I think there's, you know, there's just the climate change emphasis. If you were young, you had that behind you all the time. Mind you, I have to say, when we were young, there was this... What was it? Some what was it? Nuclear. There was some. There was a few things that's, that the whole world could blow up any minute now. So I suppose things aren't that different, except this is a bit more extinction time, you know. But then I suppose a nuclear bomb would also be extinction. Time. I think it was the freedom of the time. The freedom you just sort of hang out, and you know, you didn't have to always, as I say, make an appointment, and you know, you just turned up. And 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 the money thing, it just wasn't the same. It wasn't so much easier and I don't know what's happened to the whole thing with my everything's based around finances at the moment which I find well kind of sad in a way that that's what it's come to money 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 you know it's just but thank god I still have friends who are um 
you know, a bit more into the spiritual and the, the alternative. So, so that's lucky. <laughs> I started doing yoga in, wow, when I met Dick, I think, in 65. And there, w- there was only one lady doing it up in Notting Hill Gate in, a, in the front room. And then she subsequently, she was amazing actually. She, and she would, did the Iyengar method and she, Iyengar is the start of a whole, and he, he came over Iyengar to do a class once actually. And then her, one of her pupils became another yoga teacher. I mean, I, I don't do, I used to go quite a lot. Now I just, you know, I just managed to do a few salute to the sons in the morning, but I don't really do it as much as I did then, no, no. But I still try and do meditation and I, I do a lot of Tibetan Buddhist teachings and talks and things. So I'm still I'm still very interested in that. I mean, not interested, am part of that. You mentioned just uh, that you went to Tibet on a trip. Did you go to monasteries? Were you doing that? Well, yeah. So the first time when we went to Ladakh, when you go there, it's like a mini Tibet. It's it's uh, India on one side, Pakistan and other Tibet on on another side in China, but it's a small in a valley. I mean, not in a valley. In a, it's high. It's like thirteen thousand feet in the Himalayas. And so the, um, the the head of a lineage who's now called His Holiness Galwan Drukpa, we met him at a friend's place in London. And didn't, no one quite knew how important he was because they're all dressed as monks. I mean, you can't tell the difference. And then he got you know got quite friendly with him he said oh you must come to Ladakh and Dick in particular really liked him he's, he's an amazing guy obviously because he's a Tibetan Buddhist head of a lineage and he was younger than us so oh, okay let's go to Ladakh and then when we were there we didn't realize my god the whole it was bowing you know, and then slowly we found out that he is in fact a very important head of a lineage called the Drukpa Kagyu lineage and slowly but surely we well, I certainly became a student of his. My husband comes along, but you never said he says he's a friend, not a student. But I then then we we went with him and other students to uh, Nepal, which was quite nice because it was quite small. Now it's got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, and because he's got followers in Taiwan, Vietnam, all over now, and he's got huge monastery in Nepal. But Ladakh was his main sort of. That's where there there were loads of monasteries and. They were, ne- they were nearly all Drukpakagyu lineage. So when we went there, yeah, we, we, we just looked at all the monasteries and went, you know, and then later on, then we went and had teachings with him in all these different places. So when we went to Tibet, he, but that, that, that was a tricky trip because that was very, very high. I actually got really bad altitude sickness there. He got, there's about 40 international students. It was still small at that point, but then a lot of people, I mean, I don't think I'll ever be able to go back that high again. It was just, it was, it was too much. I got too ill up there, but it was amazing. I'd never, it's my best trip I've ever done in my life. But then he, he invited us to go there because to go back to the monastery where he and his previous lives was the head of. And it was an amazing because it was East Tibet as opposed to Lhasa where you, there's, a, there's a, quite a lot of tourists now, I guess, and all the police are there anyway, because it was East Tibet and you had to come in through China, through, I suppose, West China, because it was East Tibet. It was incredible because you never, ever saw uh, a Westerner. It, it, it really was amazing. I mean, Ladakh's amazing anyway, because it's in the Himalayas, but Tibet's got this much op- more huge wide open spaces of mountains. And, and yeah, so we were in a couple of monasteries in tents, <laughs> staying in tents. 
was pr pretty basic, but it was amazing. Oh, sounds very fascinating. You mentioned wanting to do a book and also about your family and especially about Hungary. What happened after the war? Did they lose the restaurants? Well, after we came out, then very soon after that, in 47, the Iron Curtain came down. I mean, you know, that was after the war divided. And then it became a dark, poor, poor, poor and dark. But yes, so my poor grandparents who had been very wealthy and to re-educate them, they were moved into like peasant houses and then when they came back they moved families into their apartment and in the end they lashed a small apartment with all that hard work they'd done it, it, it was a pretty awful and then you couldn't go back I mean my mother took me back in 48 but that was it then after that because I needed my tonsils out and she didn't trust an English doctor she wanted to go back to her own Budapest children's doctor that she knew which was a bit dodgy because they did actually take our passports away for a minute but then Mummy managed to flirt her way out of the back. So then after that, that was it. My father never saw his father again. Mm. His mother in the 60s actually came out once. But, you know, it, it was a very sad. And also they were very secretive, but they didn't want to talk about it because it was so dramatic for them that they had a champagne life and lost everything. I mean, luckily I've still got all the old photographs and I still remember quite a, I remember quite a lot of it myself anyway, because especially when I went back, age five and a half then, you know, it was, I do remember a lot, even though people, you can't remember things that happened at three. I said, well, I do. So that's that. I, but um, so it was very, it was very difficult for them. Yeah. My mother was quite brave. She used to go back with suitcases full of clothes to give to her, you know, people that she knew there, but only after a while, you know, but it's while it was communist still. So that was, it, it was hard for them, hard. To lose, to, to lose. I mean, he, he was very successful, my father here, but to have lost that and that life and, you know, I don't think they ever really recovered from that, to be honest. There was always a certain underlying something that was difficult to describe. But, I mean, there were, you know, Hungarians are not, I mean, they're, they're full of life and force of nature, but there, there was a sense underlying sadness, I think, about it. Incredibly sad. Mm. I moved to London in 1991 when I was a little child. So I, I very, I feel like I very clearly remember your father's name and his guides. And people oh, in 91? Yeah. Moved? Nine, oh, to London. So I... And how long did, were you here for? I was there until 2002. But my parents were still there for a long, you know, a while after that, 10 years. So you can't, you, you, do you still, well, not now, but... Will you be still coming? <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah. up until COVID, I usually came a couple times a year. I'm a British citizen. And where are you? Where do you live in London? Yes. In Putney, on the river. <laughs> I love it here because you've got, I walk on the river a lot. And then you've got Richmond Park and you've got Barnes Common and Putney Common. So you really, you, you really got nature around you. And I love the Thames. I love Putney. I didn't, I grew up in North London, so I didn't really know it until... My brother and sister-in-law were living there um, for a couple of years. So are you going to write a book? Is it going to be an autobiography or is it going to be sort of on? Yeah, no, no. I, yeah, so that's what I want to do. I mean, the thing is, so many people have said it for so long. Oh, you must, you must. But I think partly it's not really. I mean, I think I think my early life is actually more interesting, not more interesting, but the life in Hungary and what happened there 
before the war and how we came out and how my parents met because I haven't even filled you with all of that and what they did. And I think all of that is actually very interesting. So it's almost like a different dimension to just someone who just had the same life as I had, if you see what I mean, because I, I, I find that. So Alex Shulman, she got, she, she, she got her right, um, editor, literary editor, to do an article, two-page article in Vogue about this, that, because I told her and she was very interested. I, I don't know how you can get that biography. It was quite interesting, actually. It was two, two pages. And then so many people said, oh, you must do it, must do it. Somehow, I thought, oh. and then I think, well, no, actually, do you know what? It's time I did. I just get on with it, really. But this friend of mine particularly wants me to do it and she keeps she got ghostwriter and then I thought well no I don't I don't think I should do a ghostwriter because I find a friend of mine did a book with a ghostwriter and it was it wasn't her it wasn't her speaking it wasn't her so I just think even though I can't I mean I'm not a writer but it doesn't really matter because it's what I have to say and then I'll say it and write it and then an editor can help me obviously with grammatical or whatever it is but I think if it's not my own voice it's not it's just not worth it so because they're not going to ever get it as you as I describe it so this 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 friend of mine who done she's done some writing courses I was going to do one and she, the other day she would write and I was telling her about the hungry thing and it just one of the things I said um that when my mother used there to have hide in the cellar from the Nazis and then from the Russians and she said it's quite interesting how different the Nazi soldiers she heard march the boots and the Russian soldiers marching. She said, it, yeah, oh, that is amazing. You, you just write that down and write a few things down and send them to me and I'll help you with it. And so because she's encouraged me and I think she'll be able to help me a bit, I thought, well, just do it really, get on with it. <laughs> don't think about it and talk about it so long but of course it's not that easy because when you're very busy because I'm still you know still get some orders on the website I have to deal with or now I'm helping with the invitation for the show my husband it's quite difficult right I'm going to take two hours off and sit down and do it but I I think after the you know maybe after the exhibition I really should because it's, it's no point talking about and thinking about it you just got to do it but I find that much more difficult than I know so well what I'm doing with design. I could do it sounding on my head if someone, you know, this is a new thing. So I think it would take more time to think about how to do it. I definitely think you should, because obviously that sounds like such a fascinating area of your life. And you have this personal, intimate understanding, knowledge of it. And you're not just your memories, but your mother's memories, and, you know, that you remember. And of a part of the world that, underwent such changes and you should definitely do it I know it's scary to well yeah because you know it's, it's the thing is someone said there's not another book on the 70s or another 60s but I thought well actually no because that was only part of my life but actually I haven't actually read very many good books about the 70s mm -hmm. really about people who were there in the same manner as I was I mean I don't know they probably exist I should try and look at those but I certainly wouldn't want to focus just on that although that was a big part of, an exciting part of our life, of course. But there's so many other, I mean, th this is the thing, I've really, it's been such an eventful life. And then, you know, we lived in Morocco for three months and there's all in the form of text. So all those things, there's so much. And, you know, when I was 15, my 
best girlfriend's mother married the Duke of Bedford to so suddenly we're at Woburn Abbey every weekend. Things like that. It's almost too much sometimes. I don't know, I don't know where to start or how to fit it all in. Or but finally, I was a friend of mine saying, look, just every time you think, just write it down that bit and put it away and write that bit and put it away and then you've got all these bits and then eventually you can put them together. Another friend of mine said, oh, maybe you should just focus on that thing that happened in Hungary. And I thought, well, not really, because that's such a small part of my life, you know, it's only till I was six or something. So it's, I, I don't quite know how to do it yet. That's the thing. I've got to sort of, do I put the whole lot in one book or do I do half the book? I don't know. Till I was till I met my husband or but no because then you should put the 60s thing in it's quite difficult to know where to stop because it's such a long involved eventful life that's the thing that it really don't quite know where to begin and end I agree with your friend who said just if you think of something to write it down even if it doesn't make sense altogether yeah um, yeah because I think that'll be at least you'll get me started and it'll the shape will come later and then you'll figure out yeah yeah Okay, well, thank you so much. Thank you. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll be listening out. Okay. <laughs> Thanks again for listening to this conversation with Adina Rone. On the website, I've put together a slideshow, some movie clips, and a short bio. Coming up, I have conversations with models, illustrators, artists, writers, and more. Please subscribe so you never miss an episode. All episode materials are available at sizewhispers.com. See you next time.